0: Welcome to the Enable Me podcast series where we bring together stroke survivors, health professionals and researchers providing you with practical advice to enable you on your journey to reclaim your life after stroke. The advice given in this podcast is general in nature and you should discuss your own personal needs and circumstances with your healthcare professionals. You can join the conversation at enableme.org.au. This series is presented by Australia Stroke Foundation, working to prevent, treat and beat stroke.
1: Many of the challenges that people face after stroke are not visible to those around them. So issues like fatigue, memory loss, even speech difficulties aren't immediately apparent. And this makes it hard for others to understand what stroke survivors are going through, and it can be a barrier to stroke survivors getting the support they need. In this podcast, we're going to talk about the impact of invisible and hidden disabilities, how to make others understand, and some things you can do to live well while dealing with them. We'll speak to psychologist and researcher Professor Ian Nebone and to social worker Siobhan McGinnis from StrokeLine. But first, we have with us stroke survivor Tony Afaris. Tony's a former primary school teacher who now continues to educate as a Stroke Safe ambassador, as which she speaks to community groups and workplaces on recognizing the signs and preventing strokes. Tony, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, our first question uh, will be no surprise to anyone who's listened to this podcast before. Could you just uh, quickly tell us your stroke story? Okay, back
2: in 2013 September, I was um, down at my holiday house. Got up to feed the dog and went to the toilet. And as after I've washed my hands, I've gone to walk out of the bathroom, and sort of fell to the side of the room. I um, that was all I had was just that I fell and I had this sense of looking down on myself. Uh, Because there were stairs nearby, I called for my husband to help me get back to bed. So he did, and I went back to bed. felt a little bit sick, but nothing major, and had the tiniest of headaches. Um, we were actually meant to be spending that day painting our garage, but um, I just slept the whole day and all I could say is that I felt like my head was too heavy for my neck um, and my husband thought oh, I just was trying to get out of painting, so <laughs> but I wasn't. Um, so I, like I said, I spent the day pretty well sleeping all day um, and no other real symptoms that I can describe apart from a feeling of just not feeling right. Uh, the next day, I drove home because I suffered from severe motion sickness. So I thought, rather than acerbating that feeling, I'd just I would drive and do that. So I did. On the Friday, I saw an osteopath and explained what had happened. And I'd had that osteopath appointment booked for the you know previous month. Um, and so she did basic neurological tests and said, "Look, everything seems fine. I'll just do a gentle treatment. Let's see how you go." So I did. Um, she did that. I actually felt a little bit better. But she said, you know, if you feel worse, don't get better, then go and see your GP. On the Sunday, so between the Friday and the Sunday, I still was just incredibly tired, just wanting to sleep all the time. On the Sunday, my husband said, oh, I think I should take you to the emergency department. I said, don't be stupid. It's only for emergencies, you know. <laughs> so I'll go and see the doctor tomorrow if I'm no better. On the Monday, I went and saw my GP. Um, they did the same test that the osteo had done, but I actually had lost some sensation in my face. And arm, um, and it also had got some weakness down my left-hand side. So they rang around to get me into an MRI as soon as they could. Uh, that was for the next day. So I went and did the MRI and a CT scan, went back to my doctors on the Wednesday to get the results. And I've walked in and she just said, I'm so sorry, you've had a stroke. Wow. So that was the start.
1: <laughs> yeah, okay. We're here to talk about um, invisible or hidden disabilities. Now, can you tell us a bit about what you experienced in terms of that? Okay,
2: so um, I, um, I suffer a lot, like I've mentioned, with fatigue, um, but I also it's affected my, as you said, I was a primary school teacher, um, but it's affected my maths, my spelling. I can no longer read books. Um, I just can't follow stories or anything like that. no, I was a really big reader beforehand. Decision making is a really big thing. My emotions, so and that goes hand in hand sort of with the decision making. Um, then um, sensory overload is a major factor. So like whilst I present now as you know people would not know that anything is wrong. I go, um, I live near Fountain Gate Shopping Centre, so that's where I go for my, um, do my grocery shopping, and after about an hour, I actually lose the ability to walk and talk properly, and I suffer from left side neglect, so I actually lose my vision in my left-hand side, and my husband has to walk on that side, otherwise I'll start bumping into people or things that I just aren't aware of that are there.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you very much for braving the crowds to come into the <laughs> in the city today to record. <laughs> In one of your blogs on Enable Me, because you are a frequent kind of visitor on Enable Me, you said that disability is not a competition. Um, How well do you think people understand what it means to have hidden disabilities and what what you're going through?
2: Um, Look, people don't understand unless they've actually seen me when I'm affected. And I think in a way that's understandable because how can you know about something if you if you haven't been educated about it, or, or you haven't you know you haven't got that visual visual stimulus to see what's going on, but it can be once I start getting affected, it you know it actually starts affecting my speech and things like that. So then they do realise, but it's the trying to get people to understand so that you know my day has to be sort of planned around like I plan for a few days in advance as to what I'm doing, and so sometimes I'll have to say to people, look, I can't do this because I'm going to be tired from that. They're like. What a lot of rubbish, you know. They just don't want to come. They're trying to make an excuse, sort of thing. So there's that side of it, which is, you know, can be a bit hard to deal with because you get some funny looks for it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you, I imagine you are quite a good communicator because, yes, yeah, so we got you a teaching background. Um, you you do a lot of speaking as a stroke safe ambassador. Um, do you think it's possible to explain this to people to get the message across of what a hidden disability is like? I
2: think so. I think I've been doing a good job. <laughs> sort of every opportunity that I get, I sort of, I do take advantage of. So even for example, um, I've recently come back from a holiday from the Northern Territory, and so flying really affects me. So I can walk on the plane and I'm perfectly fine. and as soon as other people start walking on the plane and then the plane takes off, I again, I need assistance with walking and talking. Um, I actually need wheelchairs to get off the plane. And if you think so, you know, with this trip to the Northern Territory, i I've always asked for special consideration, the special assistance on my booking. And so when they, at the airport, they asked, you know, special assistance um, people first, passengers first. And I've gone up and they've gone, we don't want you, we want, you know, mm. special assistance. And I'm like, I actually am. Um, and so then the first time that I got up to use the bathroom and then they saw how, severely affected I was and like my husband was helping me to get down they've actually turned and said oh look the business class toilets are closest so we'll get you to use those ones and then um, they um, had to get the lift in to get me off the plane because we didn't land at a boarding gate and so I actually then spent time with all of the flight crew and explained my stroke story and all the different effects of it
1: and that's interesting because I guess they're, they're professionals who have to deal with people with all mm-hmm. kinds of uh, different issues and yeah. you think that they would have some understanding yeah. of that. But
2: nothing. And even I went to an NDIS um, information session that was held at the City of Casey and I went up to the NDIS um, table because I'm only getting ready to start the process and um, they're like, oh, what, so is it for your children or elderly parents? And I'm like, no, nah, it's actually for me. And, you know, just the look of disbelief mm. is um, – so, again, uh, yeah. I, go th- I go through the spiel. Exactly, and <laughs> yeah.
1: Now, um, before we record this podcast, we normally put a call out to our community for questions. And someone asked about whether um, children and young adults can be a bit more flexible in their thinking, a bit better be able to understand when someone is facing difficulties, whereas those who are older perhaps a bit more fixed in their assumptions. Do you think that that's the case at all? I
2: personally haven't experienced it. In my experience, because a lot of my stroke-safe talks are with probus clubs and things like that, so it's with a lot of older people, they do understand, they really empathise, I suppose, because a lot of what I'm experiencing, whether it's the isolation of not being able to go out, um, needing to have someone with me, they're things that they're experiencing, so they actually can relate to that a lot, which I think is, you know, for a lot of young people, that's sort of like they look at you and they're yeah, she's old, you know. We don't really, they don't understand, they don't, they, they don't have that relatable component to it.
1: Right. Okay. So yeah. Okay. So do you have um do you have a bit of an ideal in your mind, or how you like to see people um people treat those like yourself who have invisible disabilities?
2: Um, look, I've had some really bad experiences, um, and then I've had some good ones. The worst one was probably um I'd gone away on holiday and we parked, we were going to catch a ferry, so we parked in the disabled parking spot because I knew that once I walk up over the water I get affected. So we've parked in there and a couple of the workers were outside, you know, in their morning tea break, whatever, and have had a go at me for parking in there. And I've said to them, look, I've actually got a sticker and I've had a stroke, I've had multiple strokes, um, so You know, I'm entitled to use it. And as I've walked off, you hear them talking to each other and then one of them says very loudly, yeah, and the guy that usually uses it has lost his legs. So I actually went to their manager and said, you know, you need to educate them and things like that. But then there's other people, like I've got friends that know that, okay, if we're going out for a coffee, I can only go out for an hour. So it's all about, like I said, that education yeah. And that's, that's the key so part getting to Getting that it. understanding. Yeah.
1: Okay. What advice then would you give to people who do have, uh, who are dealing with invisible disability?
2: Okay, like I said before, you can't expect people to make allowances or to um, be understanding if they don't know about it. So what you have to decide is how much you're willing to share of your story. So I think a lot of that can come down to what you've accepted about what You're going through what you're experiencing and once you've decided what you're willing to share, then do it because then once you do share that, life becomes a lot easier. That's In my experience, that's what i found by sharing that. Like, you know, we've got a restaurant that we go to up in Gippsland that um, because we've explained to Marty that, you know, I need to sit in a quieter spot so that I can stay a bit longer, as soon as we book, he puts aside a particular table for us because he knows that's where I'll be most comfortable. And so those little touches really do make a big difference.
1: Thank you very much, Tony, and hope you keep up the good work speaking as a Stroke Safe Ambassador. Thank you. Now, Tony, will be sticking around while we talk to our next guests, but for now, that was Stroke Survivor Tony Afaris. Did you know you can customise the Enable Me website to suit all your viewing needs? You can choose large-size fonts or different alignment of text on your screen, a high-contrast screen so that different parts stand out, automatically underline the start and end of each sentence, read in easy English, and many more options. Set up once and your personal settings are saved for all your future visits. Just click on the accessibility icon at the top of the screen at enableme.org.au. Our next guest is Professor Ian Niebone Ian is a clinical psychologist and researcher at the University of Technology, Sydney, and he's a member of the Stroke Foundation's Research Advisory Committee. Ian, welcome to the podcast.
3: Oh, thanks for having me.
1: Now, we're talking about invisible or hidden disabilities, and that can cover many kinds of issues. What sort of things do you think would be considered the banner of invisible disabilities?
3: Well, I think there's, there's a range of things in stroke, and I, I think they're the things that literally are invisible because you can't see them. So um, some of the things that don't become apparent until you talk to someone, for instance, so someone may have a receptive language or communication problems, called, you know, often called aphasia. Also, cognitive deficits, things like memory, uh, decision-making, problem-solving ability uh, are very common post-stroke and uh, sometimes don't ameliorate over time with the systems of rehabilitation. I think also one of the things that we see certainly in psychology is dissociated mood problems. You know, you're at much greater risk um, of depression and anxiety after stroke than uh, the normal population. So uh, I think we need to factor that in as something you can't see uh, and can really affect not only rehabilitation outcomes but even morbidity after a stroke.
1: Okay, so this is this a case where you have... Like uh, like the communication difficulties, like aphasia, are themselves an invisible disability. Like you said, is this a case where that sort of thing is then leading to um, further issues with with mood?
3: Certainly, certainly, as I say, you know, even after stroke, so you know, if we see you know twenty five to thirty percent of people having depression after stroke, that incidence is doubled for people with aphasia. So. Uh, you, you kind of got a double jeopardy having had a stroke and associated disability and challenges with that. But then also the specific challenges of uh, a communication uh, difficulty uh, add to, to the risk of that. So so the components that we, we do to try and prevent uh, uh, that occurring in people with aphasia because they're at such high risk, the so things like goal setting, developing a, a stroke story. And, you know, Tony, who's spoken before, can tell you the benefits of having a stroke story and being able to recount that and understanding themselves in the context of their stroke. Um, looking at uh, people uh, being, who are close to you being uh, trained in supportive communication to assist communication with you. Uh, looking at how to find the positive and stay connected socially are uh, other aspects, of the ASK program.
1: Okay. Now, another area where um, invisible disability often becomes a really big challenge for people is when they uh, try to return to work, which I understand is another topic that you've researched. What what sort of things can help people returning to work with a disability?
3: Well, the, probably the best, the strongest thing in terms of the research about uh, return to work after a stroke is um, clearly that the. the getting good rehabilitation, so getting the best outcome. So, you know, having things like uh, being able to do more functionally, uh, fewer neurological deficits, better cognitive ability are the most common predictors of return to work. But some of the things are certainly, you know, uh, preparation, knowing one's rights with re- with with respect to uh, returning to work. The best thing we do know is that, you know, if you can return with uh, a previous employer, there's a great advantage in that rather than starting again with somebody. So someone you've got a history with, who may be able to modify their workplace if that's needed. Um, the other things that, you know, for those who are looking for new jobs, looking at assessing their skills and looking at job interview skills, um, those, all those sorts of things that are standard and supportive for anyone returning to work are very useful.
1: We heard from from Tony though about I guess the importance of having to explain the issues that you're going through. is that is that something that is is a big factor you think in returning to work and is perhaps where having that prior relationship with the the um the
3: organisation helps? Yes, yeah, so certainly some of the things we do in interventions to support people returning to work if they wish to do so include uh, looking at the questions they might be asked about disability, how much they go uh, are they feel they're able to express about their disability and how that might work out, so how to respond to questions from an employer. Also, the opportunities to have someone, uh, you know, possibly an occupational therapist or uh, another member of the stroke rehab team talking with the employer about uh, the, the, uh, the disability levels and the supports. so people have got a realistic expectation of the return to work program and of the capacities of the individual. Uh, and also people aren't saying, oh, they've had a stroke, they can't come back. Okay. Uh, so stopping and interfering with those black and white type approaches to things. And also very much, you know, the hidden disabilities we're talking about can make a difference, so cognitive deficits. So you can have a very small, say, um, executive dysfunction, we call it the problem-solving, higher-order decision-making deficit. So it's very mild, hasn't been present at all in your rehab, hasn't need to be addressed because you aren't being particularly challenged uh, in, in, you know, Perhaps returning to um, you know in normal day-to-day activities, but once you're in a workplace, that tends to be where the biggest cognitive challenges lie. It's not until you go back to work, and you know I've worked with you know, executives and th- people who've had had strokes and returning to sort of high high-level decision-making environments, and it's only when they sort of go back to work that they're finding um, that they they've got residual deficits that they weren't really aware of, and that's why we think we'd, we'd return to work cognitive assessment and. Uh, Looking at the demands of the environment are very important as part of the the occupational rehabilitation.
1: I guess a different um, different aspect might be um, trying to find people who do understand uh, what you're going through. So um, thinking things like um, peer support, that sort of thing, can those uh, can those be important in helping people adjusting to their to their life after stroke?
3: Well, interestingly enough, I think uh, our, our anecdotal evidence is certainly that that's the case, and there are literally hundreds of These groups, um, you know, where I've worked in the UK and in Australia with stroke support and people speak about the benefits, but there's limited research to support the benefits. I mean, certainly anecdotally, we see people get a a, a lot of support from being with people in in similar circumstances and learning from what works for them. And I think, you know, Tony was talking earlier and her sharing her experiences to people with stroke and those without stroke, and it makes a real benefit potentially to her, but also to those other people on the other end of of sharing that stroke story.
1: Okay, so do you have any other advice then for people who are dealing with invisible disabilities?
3: I think certainly from the point of view of mood state, I think there's a, a, you know, I've talked about the high incidence of uh, depression and anxiety after stroke. Um, And some people don't seek assistance and support with that element because they think it's, you know, of course I've had a stroke, I'm going to be depressed or anxious. So while they you know, if we talk about after a phase, maybe 60% of people have a significant uh, depression at some point. We're also saying that 40% of people don't. So while it's understandable, it's not inevitable. And if we can work um, uh, with people to uh, to change that mood difficulty, uh, to improve things for them, they're going to have better rehabilitation outcomes, whether that's return to work or or life participation or. Uh, return to previous roles in terms of the family and uh, the community uh, as well.
1: Great. Well, thank you very much, Ian, and um, good luck with your continuing research.
3: Okay, thank you very much.
1: That was psychologist Professor Ian Kneebone.
0: Getting good results at every stage of your stroke recovery depends on getting good health care.
3: When you're in hospital, you need to know what to expect from your stroke team and what to do if something goes wrong.
0: And when you're out of hospital, you need to know how to access rehabilitation services that you can afford so you can continue your stroke recovery.
3: There's a lot of help out there, but the health system is
0: complicated and it can be tricky to navigate. The Enable Me website can help with information on how the healthcare system works for stroke and the right links to find the help that you need. We also tell you how to choose a good GP.
3: You can find all this by looking for Getting Good healthcare under the Resources tab on the Enable Me website. That's enableme.org.au. Our final guest
1: is social worker Siobhan McGuinness, who can be heard on the Stroke Foundation Stroke Line. Siobhan, it's good to have you here again.
4: Yeah, thanks, Chris. Thanks for inviting me. It's always a pleasure. And,
1: of course, we still have Tony Afaris with us in the studio. Now, as we've heard, there are a lot of disabilities that might be considered invisible, and we don't go into too much detail because we've covered them in other podcasts, and also uh, Ian and Tony have talked a bit about them as well. But I feel it's worth looking at two of the most common issues that people talk about facing, which are memory problems and fatigue do you have any advice for dealing with those in particular?
4: Yeah, look, um, thanks for that, Chris. I think, yeah, memory and fatigue are certainly uh, issues that are raised on stroke line a great deal. We'd, we always or generally often say to people, um, make sure that if you, are, um, if you are feeling very fatigued, that you actually raise it with your GP or your neurologist as well, just to make sure that there's no underlying other causes of the fatigue, so things like perhaps changes in mood, um, dietary Uh, deficiencies, side effects from medications and particularly I think if people have had post-stroke fatigue and it gets worse or that they find that it's impacting more on their daily activities that they don't necessarily raise that with their GP so I think it's important to do that. Um, Tony touched on listening to your body you know actually listen to you know how you're feeling we will often say that it's much easier to manage fatigue post-stroke if you don't let it get to the point where you can't manage it. So we often hear that people talk about having that um, uh, fatigue hangover, so feeling tired and pushing through and keeping going and then finding that the next week is something that is very difficult for them to manage as well. Um, Talk about how you're feeling. Talk about the impact that it has on you. Um, I know, Tony, you you were talking about the fact that sometimes people just don't understand when you talk about fatigue. Um, We often talk to people about using language that other people might, might understand, so things like brain fog or rubber brain or... Walking in glue, those sorts of things, which can be sort of an, uh, an emotional sort of um, description of, of how you're feeling as well, it better help people understand memory. Memory again can be affected by fatigue, it can also be affected by by things like pain and sleep problems as well. Um, there's a really good podcast on a name of me about memory, and that goes through some really good strategies. But the strategies that we often talk about are internal strategies, so looking at um, strategies to help modify your approach to a task. So, for example, if you have difficulties with word-finding difficulties or difficulties, say, remembering names. So if I'm introduced to Chris and I, I, would, I would often recommend that people say, look, I have problems with, with my memory. I may forget your name. I may ask it again. Um, it's not because you're not memorable. It's because I have difficulty in retrieving that information. So an internal strategy might be, okay, so I've met Chris. I went to school with a Chris. Um, so I'm going to think about that Chris and then when I look up I have a a, um, greater capacity of of bringing up Chris's name again as well. Um, External strategies can also be helpful. So using things like calendars to help remember appointments, um, diaries to put things in, smartphone apps that perhaps have um, alarms to remind you of things like taking medication or times that you have to leave for appointments, Um, setting up your iPhone with a reminder, say, the day before, or two hours before you have to do something as well. Um, Actually talking to your medical team or talking to your doctor if you're noticing that there have been any changes. Obviously, as Tony said, you didn't have um, inpatient rehabilitation or a rehabilitation program, but actually raising memory issues with your doctor... As a start, and then looking at perhaps um, support through, say, an occupational therapist or even neuropsychologist who can do a full assessment to see how the changes are impacting on, on your daily activities and daily function. I would actually recommend
2: if you are suffering from fatigue, I think it's really worth going to your doctor. And letting them see you when you're fatigued. Yeah. Because when I did that with my GP, that was when they really became aware of how affected right. I was. Because I, every other time, I'd made sure I was rested mm. before I went and so that I could understand what was going on. When I was just, you know, really fatigued, yep. it was just a they – they couldn't believe – the How it's the difference between, you know, capable me and yeah, <laughs> affected absolutely. me. Yeah. So yeah.
4: And I think sometimes if that's not possible, talking to your worst day as well. Yeah. So actually saying to them, This is me on a good day, I've had an hour rest this morning. On a bad day, I, you know, wouldn't have been able to walk straight into this room. I would have required support. I would have required help to get out of the chair. So yeah. Yeah, same thing. Yeah.
1: I guess this um this is fits in with what we're talking about about explaining what you're what you're going through uh, to other people. Now, um, Tony's talked about some of the I guess the the harmful sides that when you try to try explain to like um. A government support with like the NDIS that she went through or the um, the, the disabled parking. Um, how do people respond when there is that kind of, I think you're cheating the system in some way because you don't look that you have an issue?
4: So applying for things like the NDIS and uh, disabled parking permits, I think it's having a good team behind you. So having actually access to health professionals and medical professionals who can provide reports particularly to the NDIS on you at your worst day and the difficulties that you're, you're having Um, disability parking permits I think having a a good GP who as Tony just said has seen you on on a bad day so that they can actually document that legitimately when you're talking to people who say to you oh you look good or you look fine or, or even your GP who's seen you in a good position I think it's about being open and being honest Again, going back to thinking about that language, actually trying to explain to people, "Well, this morning I've got up, I've had a shower, I've been really, really tired when I've done that, so I've actually sat down for half an hour and done some mindfulness or meditation, or um, had, a, had a rest, and now I'm able to, to get up and move around. Um, on days where, where I'm busy, you'll find that, you know I'm, I find it really difficult to, to walk or to um, be able to communicate effectively with you as well. Um, I think as Tony's talked about educating people, so actually educating people about the impacts of these disabilities, talking to people about assumptions, calling people on their assumptions as well. So just because it's not something that can be seen doesn't mean that it's not a very real situation for the person who's experienced it as well. Um, Stroke Foundation have some good fact sheets and podcasts and a really good forum posts. So if you've got people who are sort of saying, oh, but you, you look fine, maybe suggesting that they have a look at the Stroke Foundation information so that they can learn a little bit more and understand a little bit more about what's, not, what's going on not only for you but for a number of stroke survivors as well.
1: Okay. Now, on the other hand, I'm sure there are plenty of people who mean well but just simply don't know what to say to, to stroke survivors or how to, how to help. What can those people do?
4: Hmm. Um, I think... All of us should be aware of our own assumptions, so actually not assuming that somebody is either fine or is not fine or needs us to do something for them. So not giving unsolicited advice. So um, if somebody reaches out and says to you, look, I'm really struggling, I'm finding that fatigue is stopping me from doing X, Y, or Z... Um, that's fine, actually talk to them about it, ask them what would help, ask them you know, what they could do to actually make things a bit easier for you or support you. Don't take things away. So don't say to Tony, well, I'll do supermarket shopping for you or um, you know, here's 19 meals prepared for you. Actually say, well, what would be helpful to you as well? Um, spread the awareness. So when you come across somebody who you know, has a hidden disability, who has talked to you about it, actually talk about that. Raise it. Don't be afraid to talk about it. Don't be afraid to raise it in your social circles. Don't be afraid to um, speak to your friends and family about it. Uh, I think there's a lot of information out there and now in in the media and in social media about hidden disabilities. Um, you know, don't be afraid to actually stand up and, and say something about it. Ask questions. Like say to to someone like Tony. Um, look you do you present really well you look like you're doing really well but you know how's it affected you not just physically but actually how how has it affected you what's the impact that it's had on you what do you find the most difficult um, as well Um, don't stop including people in activities if someone's got if someone is fatigued and has told you that they're fatigued after a stroke don't assume that they won't want to do anything or they won't want to go somewhere or they won't want to be invited out actually keep including them just say to them look if it doesn't suit you that's fine but I'm you know I'd like you to come or I'd like to come around and visit you and see what would work for for themselves Um, be patient you know pay attention be around be a friend Um, you know be available for people if they want to talk about what's going on and be aware that uh, you know perhaps going out on social occasions or you dropping in like you used to for a cup of tea or coffee may not be appropriate anymore so actually ask them what would suit them as well
1: Okay, so what are finally to finish up? What are your top tips for people dealing with an invisible disability?
4: Yeah, I think as Tony said, education. Um, So, you know, having the opportunity to go out and share your stroke story and talk about, you know, what's happened to you and and the difficulties, uh, the impact that that these difficulties have had on you as well. Reach out to friends and family, talk about it. Reach out to your GP, reach out to your neurologist, find somebody who you can feel comfortable in talking to. Um, you know, communicate well with, with people such as work colleagues or um, teachers or, or lecturers if you're returning to study um, as well. Um, find someone you feel comfortable with and make sure that you keep talking with them as well. Think about the like priorities for you, think about planning out your days. Thinking about ways that um, you can recognise when you're getting to a point where you need to, to rest, um, or when you're finding that it is more difficult. I know we talked about sensory overload, and Tony being aware that um, you know if she goes to Fountain Gate, that she only spends a maximum of, of an hour there, or that, you know, she doesn't drive and uh, because she knows that the sensory overload can cause difficulties. So returning home could be more, more challenging. So sort of be aware of your own limitations. I think focus on the small victories. Focus on the things that you, you can do. You know, be really pleased with what you've been able to achieve. I think the um the number of um things that a stroke can impact is is huge so if you've been able to have coffee with a friend one day then that's fantastic you've actually been able to achieve that for you know going back to work you know that's a a huge step being able to go out and volunteer and be a stroke safe ambassador is is one is wonderful so actually celebrate those those achievements
1: Uh, thanks siobhan that's some really positive advice now, remember, if you want to speak to a health professional like Siobhan, you can call Stroke Line on 1-800-787-653 or 1-800-STROKE, or you can ask a question through Enable Me and get a response from health professionals and other stroke survivors. If you'd like to have a stroke safe ambassador like Tony, give a free talk to your community group or workplace and share their personal experience of stroke, along with how to recognize the signs and prevent strokes, you can visit the Stroke Foundation website on strokefoundation.org.au slash StrokeSafe. And if you like what you've heard today, please take the time to give us a good rating and review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts as that helps lift us up in the search rankings so that other people can find our podcast. Thanks once again to our guests, Tony Afaris, Ian Nebone and Siobhan McGuinness.
0: That's all for today's Enable Me podcast. You can find out more on this topic and continue the conversation or listen to other podcasts in the series at enableme.org.au. It's free to sign up and you can talk with thousands of other stroke survivors, carers and supporters. You can also suggest a topic or provide feedback on this podcast. Enable.me has qualified health professionals from StrokeLine who can answer your questions and give evidence-based advice. The advice given here is general in nature and you should discuss your own personal needs and circumstances with your healthcare professionals. Music in this podcast is signed by stroke survivor Antonio ianella and his band The Lion Tamers. It was recorded at Antonio Studio, which you can find out more about at slash studio4FOUR99. That's F O 99 This Enable Me podcast series is produced by the Stroke Foundation in Australia, working to prevent, treat, and beat stroke. See strokefoundation.org.au.